This is a presentation of Northeast Streaming Sports. You are watching Frankly Speaking Sports, live from Charlotte, North Carolina. Ladies and gentlemen, the other day I'm looking around and I'm saying, I need to become part of a Carolina Panthers group that stays positive even in these tough times. And I'll tell you what, boy, have I found a group, the Carolina Panthers Den. It's on Facebook and you need to join today. This is a group that stays positive, has a good time, and interacts with a lot of other different Carolina Panthers fans. If you want to have a great time and talk about your team, encourage your team in a way that is done very professionally, then become a member of the Carolina Panthers Den on Facebook. Make sure to join today. Sports. I'm your host, Larry Frank. Really, really happy to have you with us today. And boy, do we got a lot of news, a lot of updating to do tonight. Uh, for those of you that are used to watching College Football Tuesday, that show for the season is over. Both myself and Zach McKinnell will be back next year at the beginning of the season. And Zach will, from the Blue Bloods will make periodic, um, you know, appearances on this show to go ahead and talk college football as we get closer to the college football bowl games and to some of the playoff games. But uh, we want to, first of all, thank everyone for being here tonight. Uh, we have been having record number of viewers and listeners on our show, and I want to continue to thank you all for all of your support over the past year, and we look forward once again, to having a great, great year in 2022. Um, later on, about 30 minutes from now, what a great guest tonight, guys. We did this interview a couple of months ago with Ed Marinaro. Um, if you remember, Ed, he was on Hill Street Blues, um, and he was also a running back for the Vikings and the New York Jets. Very, very good running back. Actually, an exceptional running back. I uh, played for Cornell. His son now plays for Cornell. So just a great, great interview. You definitely don't want to miss that. But as we start out our show today, you know, a lot of talk around the Carolina area about what is the quarterback situation in Carolina? What is going on in Carolina? Who is the quarterback? Well, 
you know, as far as I'm concerned, when you look at the three quarterbacks that I hear, and we discussed this a little bit last night, but it, it caught a lot of uh, comments, a lot of fan interaction on this subject, was who do we have? Who do we use next year? Folks, let's take reality as reality is. We have four games left on the season. Two of them versus the Buccaneers, one versus the Bills, and one versus the Saints. As Panther fans, a lot of you will be happy if we just win one of those four games, okay? But it's going to be very, very difficult. The toughest remaining schedule in the NFL belongs to your Carolina Panthers. Not the type of news you want to hear as Panther fans, but the truth is the truth, and that's how we live by. Now, you know, a lot of people are discussing who should be the quarterback. And we talked about this at a good length yesterday on yesterday's show. And I tell people right now, we have bigger fish to fry than who should be the quarterback. I will assure you one thing, that neither of these quarterbacks will probably be back next year. If that is a surprise to you, is a shock to you, then something is wrong. Cam Newton will not be back. Cam Norton, Cam Newton has been nothing uh, short of terrible this year. He's been terrible since he's gotten here. And you folks have to just face reality. And remember, Cam was a big star here in Carolina, but Cam is no longer a star. Cam had, does not have what he used to have the first time around. We talked about that. P.J. Walker, although he does have some glimpses of having a decent arm, he turns the ball over a lot, okay? We all know that. P.J. Walker is not in the cards as far as um, a starting, starting quarterback position goes. If they re-sign him, they will re-sign him as a backup for very little money because it's cost-effective. And then Sam Donald, you got to remember something about Sam Donald, folks. He's making $18 million. That's right. $18 million is, is he is making. A lot of that going against the salary cap. So next year, they're going to eat $18 million worth of Sam Donald's salary. The only way that they can recoup some of that is if they go ahead and trade Sam Donalds, if there's any suitors for him, and maybe pay less like $12 million. But a good portion of that contract is going to be eaten by the Carolina Panthers. But a new quarterback is going to be needed. Tyrod Taylor is going to be a free agent. Jameis Winston is going to be a free agent. There's rumors about Russell Wilson not being happy in Seattle. What's going on with Aaron Rodgers? Is he going to play another year? And if he does, where is it going to be? Do you sign him if you can work out? Now, remember, the cap is not in the favor of the Carolina Panthers. They only got about 29, 000, uh, 29 million left on the salary cap. So they're going to have to do a lot of finagling to be able to attract people here in Carolina and to sign these contracts where they use a lot of different options and upfront and spread that upfront money around over a three to five year period so that it is not as hard of a hit on the salary cap. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. 
But when I talk about the quarterbacks and these quarterbacks not being back next year, okay, the question is going to be who is. Do you go after quarterback in the draft if one is available? It looks like we're going to be somewhere between number eight and number 10 in the first round. Then you need to remember, folks, we don't have another pick until the fourth round unless we trade some people away to get some draft picks in the second round and the third round. A name that could be useful, that could get you a second round draft pick, maybe two of them, or maybe a second round and a third round draft pick, is Christian McCaffrey. You are going to need to take Christian McCaffrey and make a decision on whether you think he's going to ever be able to play football for a long period of time again. And once that decision's made, then you can move forward with that. But I would not be surprised if Christian McCaffrey is traded this year to get a couple picks, although it will not be a fan favorite and a popularity thing for the fans, it is probably something that might be looked into. You can always get a running back in the free agency market, as you folks all know. So we will uh, go ahead and figure that out. But how do you fix this team? How do you fix the Carolina Panthers? Okay, I'm going to tell you how you fix this team, folks. And believe it or not, it is not as difficult as you think, okay? It is not difficult. You are going to be entering the end of the year. You got four games left, okay? Then you wait out the playoffs, and then it's open game for everyone. You got free agency. You got the draft. What do we need to do to make this Carolina football team a contender? Well, I'm about to tell you, and like I said, it is not as difficult as people think. We have a pretty good offense. I'm Excuse me, a pretty good defense. We all know that. Signing Reddick back is going to be a big deal. How they do that, how they finagle the uh, salary cap is going to be huge. Scott Fitter is going to have to use a little imagination and think outside the box to get some people in here. Very simple. Okay, you keep that defense intact. Okay, that is a good enough football team's defense to get you to a playoff. You need a little help in the rushing game on the you know against the rush defense against the rush, but overall, it is a top 10 defense in the NFL. So, what needs to be up priority? I don't think it's anybody's uh surprise that the offensive line needs to be the top priority. You're going to have a number eight to number 10 pick. A lot of people asking, do you go after Kenny Pickett from birth if he's available? I don't think so. I think you wait one more year to get that quarterback. But at the time, it all depends on situations. This is what I'm looking out for the Carolina Panthers right now. You have to take at least one offensive lineman, no doubt about it, in the first round, and you have to pick up at least one free agent. think Brady Christensen could be back. I think Moten can be back. There's two of your linemen. You put one of these three guys right here, if they're available when you pick, 
and hopefully one of them be, will be. Um, you got Evan Neal, 6'7", 350 pounds. Imagine how solid he would make that offensive line out of Alabama. This guy is a beast. Then you got Kenyon Green, Texas A&M, 6'4", 325 pounds. And then you got Akeem um, Equano from North Carolina State, 6'4", 320 pounds. You get one of these guys, you know, that was the key for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers building that offensive line with Brady, getting Tristan Wirfs, okay, as a draft pick. You get one of these guys, you just did a huge thing for your offensive line. So you go ahead, you get that first pick. You got to go with an offensive lineman. The only way I'm even, you know, giving an eyebrow on Pickett is maybe if one of these three guys aren't available. I think the guy from NC State, um, Aquanu will be available. He's 6'4", 320 pounds. But if you can get any one of these three guys, you go after them. It's that simple. It's that difficult. You don't got to be a magician. You don't got to be a rocket scientist. You pick one of these guys. Then if you look at free agency, folks, look at some of these names here that I just put on the screen that are going to be available at the end of the year unless they re-sign with their current team. Offensive linemen. Scott Fitterer, if you're watching, these are offensive linemen. These are names of people the Carolina Panthers can use. Any one of these guys. But if I want the one guy that I would like most of all, but I don't know if he'll resign with Tampa Bay, would be center Ryan Jensen. Cost about $10 million. You probably can go ahead, um, throw a signing bonus on that, where you can go ahead and lay it over a couple of year periods so it all doesn't hit the cap at once. But if you had an offensive lineman in the draft and you had Ryan Jensen to this offensive line, you now have an unbelievable offensive line. You could use one more. There'll be some you can get probably very inexpensive. Um, you might have to go after Stinney that the Buccaneers uh, who is also going to be um, available as well. And Alex Kappa of the Buccaneers is going to be as well. So if the Buccaneers are not going to sign all three of those guys, why wouldn't you go after an offensive lineman that was on a Super Bowl team? It makes sense, folks. It's not difficult. You can afford to do this. Now you do this. Now you start thinking on your quarterback. And now you have a contending team. It takes two offenses, keeping the defense intact, number one. You're going ahead, getting two to three offensive linemen, one in the draft, one to two in free agency, and then you concentrate on a quarterback. Okay, we know Cam's not the answer. We know BJ's not the answer. No one believes that Sam is the answer. Then you, even though you got to pay Sam 18 millions, you cut your losses where they are. If you don't believe in the guy, you don't bring him back because you're paying him 18 million. You eat the 18 million as dead cap, and you get somebody else. A Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson. Hopefully, we'll know 
more about his situation. Wouldn't he be great here if everything is cleared up? A Jameis Winston is even better than what you currently have. He does turn over the ball a lot, but damn it, he throws a lot of yardage and he throws a lot of touchdowns as well. So if you can keep him contained a little bit, he's also getting over a knee issue, so I don't know when he'll be ready. And then you got Tyrod Taylor. So you have options at quarterback, okay? Don't think you have to get somebody out of the draft. If you don't can't get that right guy, you go ahead and you wait till next year's draft and build everything around that guy and get a competitive, above-average quarterback for a year, like an Aaron Rodgers, who would be love, probably love to come down here and play if we can build that offensive line. You have to build the offensive line first, folks, and that is how you go ahead and you build this team. There is not, you know, a lot of questions, should Matt Rule be fired? You know, one of the questions I'm getting today, folks, a lot of people are asking me, uh, what's the deal with Matt Rule? Should he be fired? Should he not be fired? Even though we talked about this yesterday, and we'll probably talk about it tomorrow again, okay? I have a simple answer for you, okay? I believe in processes. I don't believe in getting rid of coaches every two years, but in the event, and hear me out, that this coach has lost the locker room, the players don't trust him, the players don't believe in him, and nobody is listening to him, I don't think there's a question on what you need to do. You need to go ahead and make a change. Now, on the other hand, if the players really do believe in him, if they believe in the process, and they believe he's the right coach, then you may want to give him one more year. But this is a decision that should probably be made if it hasn't been made over the next couple of weeks, okay? Um, I'm not going to sit here and say who we should bring in, who we shouldn't bring in, um, until maybe that situation comes up. But right now, if Matt Rule still has this locker room, if the team, the hell with the fans right now, if the team still believes in Matt Rule, then you may want to keep him another year. If they don't, like I just said, and they are not buying in, they don't trust him, uh, they think he's a liar, they don't think his plan is going to come to fruition, then they need to make a change. Okay? Doesn't do anybody any good if they fire the coach if everybody still believes in him in that locker room, because then you're starting over again. You're getting another person that wants to do things their way. You have a defense that is capable of winning in the National Football League. Those couple of moves, folks, and if you disagree with me, go ahead. Whether you're either watching it live, watching it on recording, watching on Northeast Streaming Sports, listening on Tobacco Road Sports Radio, wherever you're listening, folks, YouTube, Twitter, go ahead. Let me know what you think. Am I right? Am I wrong? And what do you think we need to do to fix this team up? Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go ahead and take a quick station break, and we'll be back right after this. 
This is a presentation of Northeast Streaming Sports. Ladies and gentlemen, the other day I'm looking around and I'm saying, I need to become part of a Carolina Panthers group that stays positive even in these tough times. And I'll tell you what, boy, have I found a group, the Carolina Panthers Den. It's on Facebook and you need to join today. This is a group that stays positive, has a good time, and interacts with a lot of other different Carolina Panthers fans. If you want to have a great time and talk about your team, encourage your team in a way that is done very professionally, then become a member of the Carolina Panthers Den on Facebook. Make sure to join today. It's my great honor, thrill, and pleasure to introduce to you um, the former New York Jet, which I love, because that's where I knew him as. Um, he was runner-up in a Heisman Trophy back in, uh, believe it was, 71 uh, for Canal University. Uh, and he's a big-time actor, so there's not much I can say that, you know, this guy doesn't do. Let's welcome in Ed Marinero. Ed, how you doing, buddy? Okay, can you hear me, Frank? I can hear you fine. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Just got back from uh, Ithaca, New York, where I dropped my son off at Cornell, where he's uh, going to be a freshman on the football team. So, uh we're pretty excited about that. Yeah, and let me ask you, when you drop them off, I mean, come on, you drop them off this weekend, I mean, how many flashbacks did you have of your time when you played at Cornell? I mean, yeah, I don't know how often you go back, you know, before your son just uh, committed there, but it had to be a great, great, you know, memories for you to go back there with your son. Yeah, you know, I um... – I keep in touch with several of my teammates. In fact, uh, I hate to admit this, but this is the 50th anniversary of the team I played on in 1971 that was the first Cornell team to win the Ivy League championship. So this is our 50-year anniversary. And um, I just found out we were hoping to, to get uh, go get back to the uh, Brown game in October, but it looks like the uh, – well, the, uh, uh, the the new Delta virus is uh, going to change things for us, so we might have to postpone it a year. But I keep in touch with a lot of my former teammates. Um, I go back at least once or twice a year to see a game. Um, Cornell, you know, has always been a big part of my life, something I'm very proud of. And, and um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud that my son was able to uh, – you know, get into Cornell uh, as an athlete. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's sort of um, kind of a, it's good in a lot of in a lot of different ways. It's just I'm very proud of him. He's a, he's a really great athlete and smart kid. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to what he's going to do up there. Now, and what type of advice, because, you know, you've been through the 
transition, obviously, of high school to college. And, you know, especially when you went back then, you had so much, um, you know, going on. You, I mean, instantly you were a star at Cornell University. Did you give your son, like, some advice as you would any other? I mean, obviously you give a father-to-son advice, but did you give advice about how letting it all play out, trying to enjoy it a little bit rather than it being a blur? Yeah, well, you you can talk all you want and try to explain that to him. But any 18, 19-year-old kid, you know, they live in the moment. Um, he's uh, he's very driven, trying to teach him a little bit of patience because that's what he's going to need. He's, he's a freshman. And, um, you know, they, they, they have quite a – this is an unusual year for Ivy League football because they didn't play last year. So this year they have – Last year's freshmen are going to be technically, from a football standpoint, they're going to be freshmen. And we have seniors from last year who stayed around and are going to complete their senior year. So it's very competitive. Um, we were just up there, and there's 130 kids on the on the varsity roster. So it's going to be pretty competitive. So I just want, like you said, I wanted to enjoy it. Um, don't, you know don't have expectations that are unrealistic. I mean, he might surprise everybody. I don't know, but no, I think he's got to enjoy the process, but kids like that don't, don't think like that. They want it to be, they want it to happen now. So that's my challenge with my son. Now, when you played at Cornell your first year, when did you, or when did the university, because, you know, Ivy League schools, a lot of people don't remember, you know, you and I, I mean, you're a little older than me. Sorry. I have to admit that. But, um, you know, I, w- I was born in 66. I was a baby when you played at Cornell. I remember you with the Jets, obviously, came over from Minnesota. But when was it that Cornell realized, because, you know, Ivy League schools were good, not that they're not good today, but they were good, smart, you know, really, really good educational schools. A lot of, you know, people, and they had good football. When did you realize that? from a football perspective that, you know, it was about to become, let's say, a media circus with yourself and the success you were having at Cornell? Well, you know, we played freshman football. So I didn't play on the varsity until I was a sophomore. And trust me, I was as surprised as as anyone with the kind of success I had. I, I, I attributed a, a lot to the system that they put in my sophomore year. Not not for me, but they just uh, – the, the coaching staff decided to, to run a, an I formation as opposed to a typical split backfield. So I lined up probably eight yards behind the center, and the quarterback would, with, with a, in a two-point stance, the quarterback would turn around and flip me the ball or he, he – step back and give me the ball maybe three or four yards behind the line of scrimmage, and I was allowed to do whatever I wanted to do. I just followed, you know, my where I saw the hole. I ran the daylight, and that fit my my style just so well. So, I mean, I had almost instant success because I, I broke the uh, Cornell rushing record my second game as a sophomore. I gained 245 yards, and in um, my fourth game, we were 21-point underdogs to Harvard, um, and 
I gained uh, 281 yards and scored five touchdowns. And I was Sports Illustrated back of the week. And I was 19 years old. And um, I'd led the country in rushing uh, for most of the year. And, you know, it was, it was mind-boggling. It was overwhelming for somebody my age and for everybody around me. No one ever expected that. I certainly didn't expect that. So, you know, it, it, it did become a bit of a, a blur getting that kind of attention, you know, when I really hadn't, you know, I hadn't really, I was a, I was a, you know, I had probably 30 or 40 football scholarships coming out of high school. I mean, I had full rides to Duke, Penn State, you know, Wake Forest. Um, but, you know, I just always wanted to go to an Ivy League school. So, you know, I kind of, even then I knew that the chances of getting that national publicity at an Ivy League school was not going to be that great, but I just wanted to, you know, play at a level where I felt like I had a better, best chance of playing and I was going to get a great education. And you know what? I wouldn't change it for the world. It was great. And, um, you know, it's something that I'm, I'm very proud of. And, um, you know, I have great relationships with my old teammates, with the university. You know, I stay in touch with the program the best I can. But it's, uh, you know, it was very um, heady. Heady stuff was happening at, at a very young age. And, um, you know, I, I, I hope I handled it well, but it was very, like I said, you know, a lot happened to me really quickly in my, in my career. Yeah, it sure, it sure did. Now, Ed, you know, you were picked second round, 50 overall pick in the NFL draft. Obviously, I mean, is it safe to say as much as you enjoyed Cornell, as much as you loved the education there, that going to that school could have hurt you as far as where you went in the NFL draft? Um, no, I don't, I, I really don't think so. I, I mean, you know, I probably wouldn't have had the career I had if I'd gone to another school. I mean, um, I was the guy at Cornell and they gave me the ball. I averaged 40 yards of carry. I mean, I don't think I would have been able to distinguish myself at a, at a bigger school. Um, but, you know, more importantly, I, you know, I knew at the end of the day that even if I never went on to the NFL, that I was, um, you know, I was going to have a great education. I was going to get a great job. And then that was, um, you know, that was important to me. I had the, you know, the best of both worlds. And had I not gone into the NFL, you know, I'd be a, uh, you know, I majored in hotel and restaurant management. I'd be running a big hotel chain right now. Yeah, I know all about that. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Um, you know, you came out of college. You played with one of the greatest coaches to ever coach in the NFL in Bud Grant. And he obviously had a lot of belief in you. As you, They say that you were, and I'm sure this is still true, of course, the first rookie to ever start for Bud Grant. I mean, that has to say a lot about a coach having confidence in you. Well, I was the first uh, rookie to start offensively for them. Um, frankly, he didn't have a chance. He didn't have a choice. The our starting uh, halfback, uh, Clinton Jones, a great player, he, uh, he broke his arm, and they put me in there um, – my first start was against the Green Bay Packers at, at Lambeau Field. Um, and it was, 
you know, you're you're never quite when you. I was young, a rookie. You're, you're you know, I, I did some stupid stuff. You know, I, I made some mistakes, but I made rookie mistakes. But that's going to happen. But um, you know, I started I think six or seven games that year. Um, caught a lot of passes. They throw me the ball. You know, the, I went went to Minnesota out of college, and you know, I was known as a running a running a running back. And I go to Minnesota, and they had me basically blocking and catching passes, two things I never did in college. And um, that was a, that was the, probably one of the most challenging um, challenging things for me to learn how to do is, is block and catch passes. I knew I could catch passes, but, you know, the blocking part was, uh, was really hard. And, you know, when you have a quarterback like Fred Tarkinson and you miss a blitzing linebacker. He he's, he wasn't real happy with me uh, several times. So, yeah, I can imagine that. And you're right because I was going to ask you that. Yeah, I believe your three years in college it was six catches, eleven catches, and six catches. And then in uh, the one year was it seventy five? You had fifty four catches for, like you said, for the Minnesota Vikings. So, uh, I yeah, I, I definitely you had to change your game. But let me ask you this. How fulfilling was it to be able to play for your hometown New York Jets back in 76? You know, it was it was really kind of a dream come true. I was uh I was lucky because I got to play on a great team in Minnesota, I went to two Super Bowls, played for a great coach, played, you know, with several Hall of Famers. Um, you know, but we had a great runner in Chuck Foreman and and I knew they'd never let me really run the ball, which is, um, you know, I guess for myself, I wanted to prove that I could, you know, I could carry the ball and gain yards. And and people don't remember this, but in 1976, when I signed with the Jets, it's the first year that the Roselle rule was declared unconstitutional in the courts, and people were allowed to actually become the first free agents in the NFL. And that was the year that John Riggins left the Jets and went to the Redskins. I left to the Vikings and went to the Jets. And there was no compensation. I had played out my contract. I had a four-year contract. And I played it out, took a pay cut my last year, and I became a free agent. So I was able to go um, you know, anywhere I wanted. And when Riggins left, and then Joe Namath was a, is a good friend of mine. and We've been friends since I was in college. So it, it kind of influenced my decision to go with the Jets, and it, it was great. You know, the, the only problem, I got hurt um, in the seventh game. But before I got injured, I had 200-yard rushing games in a row, um, which, you know, if that's the, uh, the barometer for a running back to, to gain 100 yards, I, I did it twice, two games in a row. So I know that. You know, who knows what would happen if I didn't get hurt? I maybe had a thousand yard season, but I proved to myself, you know, people will, a lot of people I see them describing my, my career in the NFL as disappointing. Well, you know, I, the, the thing you learn in the NFL when you, when you look back on it is that you got to be kind of lucky. You got to get with the right team, get in the right situation. Plenty of players, and you see it happen every year. You know, um, somebody gets hurt and they, get to play, and they become all pro. How many of those guys who never get the chance 
you know, get cut. Right. The, the, the NFL is so full of talent. And the difference between becoming a Hall of Famer and, and getting released after two or three years, believe me, there are a ton of guys out there who are that good, who will never, you know, never get a chance. If you go to the wrong team, you know, you got you to gotta go to a team that, you know, their system can, can take advantage of your, your abilities, your, your talents. And, you know, I, I, in Minnesota, while it was a great experience, they never took advantage of what I knew I could do. Um, so, again, I, I don't have any regrets about my, my career. You know, personally, I, you know, I, I, knew, I knew what I was capable of, but I knew I wasn't in the right situation until I went to the Jets. Then I got hurt, and it was, it's a moot point then. And, you know, Ed, I want to just push back a little bit on college again. You know, you mentioned your son going to college with a lot of new things going on in college athletics, like the NIL, of course. Could you imagine, and I know it's easier to look back and say what if, but if at the time you were at Cornell University that you were able to do NIL, you know, utilize NIL to make a name and money for yourself? Well, you know, it's not just that. I mean, what you need today is what makes these kids have the ability to make that kind of money is social media. And um, obviously there wasn't social media back then. That, that's what, here's the scary part for that, what, what, what's going on. And, and, and I hope I'm wrong. But, you know, I'm seeing sort of a trend with young athletes and, and even some not-so-young athletes who are being um, – you know, so influenced by social media and, you know, you, you, they're listening to, they love to hear people, um, all the, the wonderful things that they'll say, but all it needs is, is a couple of trolls to say something bad about some female athlete and say that she looks fat and she'll go in the dumps, dumpster. She's, she's ruined. I mean, those are the things that these kids are, are very fragile right now. And we, you know, we we didn't really have to think about that stuff. So with this NI, what is it, NIH? Um, NIL. NIL. I think you're going to get these athletes who come into a, to the college game and are going to be more concerned with their, their Twitter followers and their Instagram followers and going to lose sight of, you know, you have to be ready to play in games. And you can't be distracted. And if they do get distracted, then they start to suck. And then they lose all their, you know, their, it can happen really quickly if you're not, you know, paying attention to, to what's important. And all of a sudden you make it like I heard the quarterback from Alabama hasn't thrown a pass yet. And he already has a million dollars worth of seven-figure money deal. Now, if he doesn't focus on being a really great quarterback and he's worried about his going home and spending time looking at how many People are following him and, and trying to be an influencer. And a young kid, that's not a good thing. And all of a sudden, if he starts playing poorly, and all of a sudden people start, you know, they want to um, break the deals they made with him and all these, that's a scary thing to do to a young kid. And it's very easy for them to get sidetracked and, you know, not remember why they're there, why they're getting this money. Because you got to perform. And if they, you know, I don't know how many young people are capable of handling this, 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 um, this kind of money and opportunity off the field and be able to perform on the field. It takes a while for you to learn that, not when you're 19 years old. Right. Um, 
you know, two years after your career ends, you're acting, you're on Laverne and Shirley. When did you decide that, was it before your playing career was over that you had, you know, aspirations of becoming an actor? Or is that something that came after your career was over? Well, I actually had an opportunity when I was still playing ball. Um, I spent some time out in Los Angeles and I kind of got discovered uh, by a, 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 a theatrical agent who, um, you know, set me up on a couple of appointments. In fact, I was, uh, I screen tested back in 1976 to replace Lee Majors in The Six Million Dollar Man because he was threatening to leave the show over a contract dispute. So the, the producers of the show brought in a bunch of, you know, young guys to, to audition for this replacement. Lee Majors was the guy. And he, had, you know, eventually he came back, obviously, and I didn't get it, but it sort of piqued my interest. So I spent that off season in Los Angeles and I got in an acting workshop for a few months. Then I went back to New York when I signed with the Jets. I got in a workshop in New York City. I would go once a week. And then when I got hurt, I kind of put all that on the back burner, tried to get healthy again. Um, I got released from the Jets in 77 and got picked up by the Seahawks at the end of 77 and uh, finished the season there. They offered me another contract to come back in 78, but I was – I, I, I tried I tried to find a team that could use a veteran guy. And, and actually, the Bears were coached by Neil Armstrong, who was the defensive coordinator for the Vikings when I was there. And Jim Finks was the general manager. And he's the guy who signed me to my first contract with the Vikings. So I reached out to those guys, and they signed me to a contract. And I went through training camp with them in 78. But I was never, I was never back to – normal. My, I had a bad foot injury. That's what ended my career. So at, at that point, I just said, you know what? I'm going I'm going to Hollywood. Now, Ed, is there a lot of, and I always wondered this, you know, just like any other thing you do when you're involved with other people, like a team, whether it's football or acting on a hit show like Hill Street Blues, I mean, did you find a lot of similarities as far as playing football and what you have to do to and in the world of acting as well? Yeah, you know, you obviously there's, um, you know, there's the focus that you have as an athlete where you can kind of, you, you know, I mean, you have to put everything out of your mind. I mean, when you're on the football field, I mean, that's the ultimate test. You know, when you're going across the middle and the ball's coming at you and you know there's there's three or four guys who are, have a beeline for you as soon as you catch the ball. But you got to catch the ball. I mean, that's the ultimate in concentration. And as an actor, you you have to do a lot of this similar mental exercise. You have to put yourself in that position that the script calls for and kind of become that person. You have to become – one with the, the environment you're in, uh, one with the situation. And that takes, you know, like sort of certain mental um, discipline. And, 
you know, it's, it's, uh, it was a lot easier when I knew nobody's going to be hitting me uh, if I messed up my lines. <laughs> yeah. So Hill Street Blues, I mean, Emmy award-winning show, obviously. I remember it real well. I mean, was that the one that broke all the doors open for you? Because I know you've been in many different, you know, films and stuff. But was that the big one that got you noticed? Uh, yeah. You know what? I, I did. I actually did um, about 10 episodes of Laverne and Shirley uh, back in, when was that? Like 80, 81. And, uh, you know, that was a top 10 show. It was fun. It was a comedy. You know, they hired me because, you know, I could take my shirt off. <laughs> But, um, you know, I did that, and then when I, that show uh, didn't go on, I got uh, auditioned for Hill Street Blues. And at the time, no one knew. It was the first season. And it was actually the last. They did 13 episodes the first year, and then they, um, you know, nobody really knew about the show. And it got picked up for four additional episodes. So it was it got 17 and they cast me as a guest star in the last four episodes, and I was supposed to get killed, supposed to die. And, um, you know, I mean, it was before I got all the Emmy nominations, but it was had a bit of a cult following, even at, at the first year. And then we won all the Emmys. They Instead of killing me off, they signed me to a contract to do the next season, so I ended up doing six seasons on, on that show. But it, it kind of elevated me to a place where I probably didn't deserve to be uh, working with, you know, just incredible actors and directors. And the writing was, you know, the writing was just incredible. And it's being so new in the business and getting to do that kind of material, you know, it's almost like actor proof. You got to be really bad not to be able to make something of the, how good the writing was. And, you know, I, I all of a sudden I was kind of, you know, I wasn't the ex-jock turned actor. You know, people started looking at me as, you know, kind of like, you know, they say, yeah, he was an ex-football player, but he's really good, you know. So, you know, that was, um, that was a, again, that was a good, lucky break for me to get on that show when I did, because it's it's a tough business. And, and to be an athlete turned actor, you know, there's that stigma attached to that. And, and, you know, to be honest, I dealt with that for a long time, for most of my career. You know, I was never quite accepted. And I mean, I did 25 television movies. I've done five, six TV series. But I was never really considered, you know, like uh, an actor. Right. I, I was, I, I don't know how they looked at me, but I, maybe if I was just being paranoid, but, you know, I, yeah, yeah, I was sort of like a novelty, if you will. So, right. Did you ever get to act? You know how people say, wow, I got an opportunity to play with somebody on the ball field that I grew up idolizing, maybe towards the end of their career. But did you ever get the uh, opportunity to um, act with someone that you are like, uh, you know, idolized as an actor when you were a kid? Um, no, well, no, not really. There were people I work with, you know, I, I'm trying to think, um, 
I, I, I did work with uh, Debbie Reynolds um, on a movie, a, a football movie, actually. It was called it was called the Daniel Huffman story. It was based on a true story. In fact, I work with um, oh gosh, uh, the, the 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 Florida State coach, just Bobby Bowden. Bobby Bowden was in the movie. Oh. And I did a couple of scenes with him because it was about a true story based on one of his players who had to give up, who had a scholarship to Florida State and had to, um, he gave his kidney to his grandmother. That was Debbie Reynolds. So he, Bobby Bowden gave him a scholarship as a trainer. It was a very sweet story, good movie. But um, yeah, Debbie Reynolds, I'm trying to think of who else I, I might have worked with. It's too late. It's too late in the day for me to remember. I hear you there. Well, let me ask you one last question, and we'll let you run. You got the opportunity to act as coach in Blue Mountain State. Um, you know, this is a game you played competitively, professionally, and you know, you mentioned something very important. You said you almost have to turn it into the part that you're playing when you act. Did you ever feel like you emulated any of the coaches that maybe you played with and you got that part You said, okay, now I'm the coach. And did you ever try to act like them or did you just always try to be yourself in that role? Actually, the person that I, who I, I channeled when I got the role was my high school football coach. Uh, his name was Emil Karlick. Uh, he was the high school coach at New Milford High School in New Jersey. And, and when I, I, I had an audition for the role, you know, I worked on the part the night before, and I thought about a, uh, a speech that he gave before one of our games. And it was, uh, we were playing at Team Saddlebrook High School in New Jersey. My high school was New Milford High School. I was a sophomore. We were 0-7 at the time. And Saddlebrook was 0-7. So Emil Carlick comes in the locker room before the game. And he says, uh, all right, listen up. We're playing Saddlebrook today. They stink. And you stink. Now let's go find out who stinks the most. So... When I auditioned, I kept doing that line in my head to have that kind of cadence. And I, I, if you've ever watched the show, but I remember the first first scene I ever did on the show, it was, uh, you know, it was once upon a time some weak, pathetic coach coined the phrase, winning is in everything. Well, that's not me. <laughs> and I, and I, I was doing Abel Carlin. And I used it the whole you know, the whole time I was doing the show, um, every time I'd go on the set, I had to do I, that. I would run that line through my head, so I got into the the right kind of attitude. But it was a it was a great fun experience for me doing that show. I mean, it was um, you know it was it was just it was a trip. I had worked with some great people. It was so much fun doing the show, and we, it's amazing how popular it stays and remains. To this day, with that audience, it was on Netflix after it was canceled. It was on Netflix for four years. I think now it's on Amazon Prime, and 
I can't tell you the recognition I have with this, you know, group of 18 to 30 year old men who just binge watched the show. I mean, it was, it was a cult show and, um, it was, it was a little bit too rough for today's, um, world, if you will, you know, with, uh, everything that's going on and, you know, but, but believe me, people still watch it. It's very, it's very funny. It's farcical, which some of the best humor is farcical, but everybody takes everything so literally and is offended by everything that, um, you know, we didn't have a chance. <laughs> right. Well, listen, Ed, I want to thank you, first of all, very much for joining us on Frankly Speaking Sports tonight and want to wish your son the best of luck at Cornell. Uh, we'll thank follow you. him and hopefully he does well there. And if you ever need anything, I'm here for you, buddy. All right, man. Thanks a lot, Larry. I hope we get to talk again. All right, buddy. Be safe. You too. That was Ed Marinero, former running back for the Minnesota Vikings, New York Jets, and also great, great actor, like we said. We'll be back right after this quick station break. This is a presentation of Northeast Streaming Sports. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking Sports. We got about seven, eight minutes left in the show. And, you know, I had gotten a message today. And one of the things that really irks me, and, you know, usually today would be a college football Tuesday show during the college football season. And the topic came up if you watch and you look and you see what's going on. First of all, Spencer Radler, former Oklahoma quarterback, entered the transfer portal. He's going to be going to South Carolina. Congratulations, great for him. But now you have so many people, just quarterbacks alone, 18 of them in the transfer portal, which I think is just ludicrous. I think it's bad for college football. I don't like it, and I don't think I'm ever going to like it. Now, I want to make something clear. I think the transfer portal has a purpose for somebody that may have had an issue, uh, whether it's a family issue, needed a transfer to another college, something happened between, uh, you know, uh, something went wrong, let's just say, uh, and a coach maybe left the university that they planned on playing for, and now they're gone. I understand certain situations, but I don't like it. I don't like it because a couple reasons. There's no loyalty anymore towards these universities. These kids go to the university. They say, look, if I go there and the coach beats me up a little bit, disciplines me, tells me I'm not as good as I think I was, I'm just going to get up, go, and leave. Okay? And then you get other players like a Spencer Rattler or a Bo Nix from Auburn who has also entered the draft that are very good quarterbacks that were doing very well where they were, and yet they decide to transfer. Where is the loyalty towards the university? Now, I understand there's coaches that do the same thing, and that's another subject for another day. Just because one does it doesn't make the other one right as well. Two wrongs don't make a right. Um, but the other thing you got to look at, think about the high school recruits that commit. They commit to these schools expecting that they may play. 
that they have as good as opportunity as somebody else to make that team, to start on that team, to be a star at that team, and then you have people transfer. It's just the way it's done is really screwing some of these high school recruits, and I don't like it at all. Um, the other reason is players don't like discipline anymore. It's not like it used to be. I don't think that's any secret, but every time a player is disciplined or corrected or criticized or given corrective action, they automatically want to turn the cheek and go the other way somewhere else. How are our kids, and that's what they are, folks, they're young kids becoming young adults, 18 to 22 on an average, okay? And how do they learn to handle the real world if they never face any type of failure? They never face any type of criticism. If they never face any type of discipline and they keep running from it and running from it and running from it, and then they fail when they get out there because they don't know what to do. You know, and there's other things such as working hard. If you go to a school and somebody else beats you out, then damn it, you need to get out there and work a little bit harder, wake up a little earlier, do some more training, do some more practicing, do some more sprinting, whatever it takes to be successful. That's how the real world works. And if you keep allowing the bunches and bunches and bunches, and I'm talking bunches of kids to enter these transfer portals, you're not doing any good for the kid, and you're not doing any good for the university. And like I said, there are some situations that warrant it. I understand family situations that happen, deaths in families, illnesses in families, and so on, a couple of circumstances. But other than that, just to let an athlete transfer for the sake of transferring, I don't necessarily agree with it. I just don't agree with it because the lack of loyalty towards the school that has given them the scholarship to go and the unintentional maybe hurt and screwing off of the high school recruits that are committing to places where they feel they have legitimate shots of playing football. Just my take. I'm not saying everybody has to agree with me, but I think college football has done a real bad thing in this transfer portal, and I don't like it. I don't like it. Um, and, you know, I know I'm just one of, a, you know, either a majority or a minority of people that think that. Once again, love to get your opinion, but at the end of the day, the transfer portal, I think, is a bad thing for college football at this time. And, you know, it's going to, unless someone can tell, explain to me how it benefits college, uh, colleges and the athlete, I'm going to continue to think that way because that's that's my honest feelings. And I always tell you folks, no matter what, I'm going to continue to be honest on this show. Now, tomorrow night, folks, we will be back again with Frankly Speaking Panthers. We will preview the upcoming game versus the Buffalo Bills. Will Josh Allen be playing? Doesn't look like it. But we'll have more on that story 
much, much more um, on the Panthers and their quest to win a game these last four games of the season. They started out with Buffalo, then they got Tampa Bay, then they got New Orleans, then they got Tampa Bay again. So the hardest schedule in the NFL the remainder of the season. Behalf of us, on behalf of us, all here at Franklin Speaking Sports, we want to wish you all a very good evening, and we'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place, with Frankly Speaking Panthers. Ladies and gentlemen, good night. <laughs>